want to wish you a happy new year. Thank you. Same to me, right? If you have your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers have plenty of extras. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. And for some of you, this may be new to you to read right from the Bible. But we believe and are strongly convinced that the Bible is the Word of God and that you will benefit from listening and learning. I want you to pray for Pastor Bob and Pastor Jeremy's wife, Emily. A number of people are very sick. Probably if, if I asked for a show of hands, you would probably know um, somebody that's sick today. Interesting, we're going to start off in our passage with someone that's sick today. But let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of John. Let's even go back a little bit further. What are we doing here? Remember our vision, our, our purpose. We need to keep reminding ourselves, what, what does God want for his church? Jesus didn't just come to give us hell insurance and let us run our own way. He came to build his church. And the purpose and mission of the church is to advance the gospel. So remember that. That's what we're here for. We're to advance the gospel. We're to help people to know the good news that Jesus Christ is the, the only way to heaven and that they can be forgiven through him. And without that, they're going to spend eternity lost, separated from God in the lake of fire. But Jesus doesn't want us to just advance the gospel, but then to make disciples. Once a person, God calls them to himself and opens their eyes, they become a born-again believer. And that's God's desire for you. If you're not yet a born-again believer, if you're not yet what the Bible calls saved, if you're not sure that you're going to go to heaven, that's the starting point. That give your soul no rest till you figure that out. How, how do I get saved? How do I know that I'm going to heaven? But once you know that, once you, you realize that Jesus forgave you by grace through his death on the cross, then we're becoming disciples. A disciple is a forgiven follower. Remember, God's goal is not our happiness, but our holiness. Jesus says it's enough for a disciple to become like his master. So as we begin a new year, I want to encourage you to remember that it's God's design to shape you and me, starting on the inside and working its way out more and more into the image of Christ. And there's no limit to that. We can become more loving, more patient, more sacrificial, more kind, more bold, more confident, a better father, a better mother, a better, better parent, better child, more Christ-like worker. And then as, we, as, as a church, as we interact with one another, the Bible teaches that this isn't a solo sport. It says until we all attain to the unity of the faith, until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all mature into the image of Christ. So from, from the cradle all the way to the coffin, we're raising little ones, we're discipling them, we're pointing them to Christ, and we're all in this journey together. So I want you to consider as we go through John that you need to see where you are in the process. Are you in? Are you a Christian? And then if you are, are you a growing disciple who's learning how to disciple and disciple others? So we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we said the theme of John is maybe best summarized with the word or the phrase, the abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. And we said that that doesn't mean you're going to be rich and healthy all the time, but you're going to have the things that only Christ can offer you, peace, joy, purpose, confidence. And I, I want to share a, a brief testimony this morning as we begin John chapter 11 that the Lord used the gospel of John to bring me to himself. And one of the ways that he used that 
is because growing up, I had a real fear of death. Now, I think for the most part, everybody sort of fears death, but some more than others. I never experienced any death in the family growing up. And then all of a sudden, when I was 17, my dad had this very, very severe heart attack, and the doctor said he's going to die. And the chances of him living were one in a hundred. And I remember going in his room and, and I was weeping and I was going, oh God, I don't know who you are, but please heal my dad. Suddenly I was, I was faced with the reality of what happens when you die? Where do you go? And one of the, the blessings that the Lord brought later in my life, he first of all healed my dad. A light started blinking on one of the machines and the nurse said, hey, that means he's breathing. And that was like a sign to me that God heard my cry, even though I, I, I didn't know him yet. He began to draw me to himself. But Jesus taught us in the Gospel of John that when you come to believe in him and become one of his followers, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the reality is, there are so many questions that people don't know about if they don't know the Bible, if they don't believe the Bible. They don't know where they came from. There's no real hard, substantial purpose for, for their existence. I don't know where I came from. I really don't know why I'm here. I mean, what am, what am I here for? And then where am I going when I die? And Jesus offers answers to all of them. And this morning we're going to see in John chapter 11, Jesus coming face to face with what the Bible calls our last enemy, death. And so this morning, let me remind you, the gospel of John says in the beginning, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. And so in the first four chapters, remember Jesus was warmly received by Nicodemus, by the woman at the well, by the Samaritans. But in 5 through 11, there's constant opposition. Jesus heals the lame man in chapter 5, and, and they want to kill him. Chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. And they, they accuse him of hard sayings, and they walk away. Chapter 7, they want to kill him again, but he offers living water. Chapter 8, they say, you're of the devil. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus heals the blind man. And what do they do? They throw the blind man under the bus. Chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd, and he offers to give his life for the sheep and to call the sheep to himself. And again, there's opposition, and they seek to stone him again. And even here, ironically, Jesus brings a man to life, and at the end of the chapter, it says, and they decided because of this, they're going to put Jesus to death. So we're going to look in chapter 11. I want you to pray with me because the Lord has blessings and encouragement and comfort for all of us in this chapter. Father, thank you for the word, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us as we consider the subject of death and resurrection and the, the gospel of Christ. So may your Holy Spirit speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Start with me in chapter 10, or 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. I want you to stop just for a moment. Let's think about this little family of three, probably pretty well off, because we learned that that Mary poured an a, a, a ointment on Jesus later on in the book that was worth a year's salary. Also, there was a whole lot of people that came to comfort 
Mary when Lazarus died. And so this well-off couple that was very dear to Jesus. And when they find out that, that their brother's sick and dying, they call to Jesus. I want you to see what Jesus says here in verse 4, because this is really profound. Jesus heard this and he said, the sickness is not to end in death. But notice carefully, he says, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus said something interesting about sickness. Back in John chapter 9, when they asked him, why was the man born blind? He said in verse 3, it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. So I want you to stop and think about this. Things happen in our lives. Things like sickness, depression, marital problems, problems with our kids, problems in life. And sometimes we, we look up to God and we go, God, what, what is going on here? I don't understand. Why are you letting something bad happen in my life? And this little passage is a great reminder that behind all of the, 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 the muck and confusion and pain that God's doing something. And I want you to know carefully that two things are happening. First of all, Jesus says, it's for the glory of God. Now, in the Gospel of John, the, the glory of God has two aspects. One, the glory of God is revealed. And then secondly, God's glory is received back by him. So let, let me explain the difference. In John chapter 1, it says, Jesus came to earth and he took on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, and we beheld his glory. In other words, when Jesus did miracles, he revealed God's glory. He revealed God's awesome power, his love, his, his uniqueness. So, so Jesus was in the business of revealing God's glory. But then the result of that is that when people would see and experience God's glory, then they would in turn give glory to God and he would receive glory. And so as, as Jesus kind of throws down the, the big picture here, we go, okay, I get it. So God allows painful things in our lives so that he can reveal his glory and then our response will cause him to receive glory. Now, in theory, that's good as long as it's not our problems. Do you remember me sharing a quote at the beginning of the Gospel of John? <clears throat> it said... Everyone wants to see a miracle, right? I mean, who doesn't want to see the glory of God? But no one wants to be in a position to need one. So it's great to watch somebody else receive God's grace in their lives. But when God puts us in that mill and we have to go through those trials and tests, it's God's goal that you and I will learn to, to bring glory to him. See, even Jesus and the Father were mutually committed. Jesus says, Father, I glorified you on this earth. But then notice, Jesus says, this is going to happen so that the Son of God may be glorified. So the Father and Son are mutually glorifying each other. Now we get it. We're here on earth, not for ourselves, but the Bible says that we can bring glory to God and that God can use us to reveal his glory to others. Now, <coughs> This is just kind of a summary. This is for the glory of God. Jesus probably said more. Because he's going to come back to this later. He's going to say to Mary later on, didn't I tell you? 
if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. So, so that's sort of the, the opening preamble. Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick, and he says, here's why. Now, the next thing we're going to no- notice is that Jesus determines to go to Lazarus, but there's a designed delay in dealing with the sickness. A designed delay. Start with me in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was? Wait, what? He intentionally didn't go there? And what we're going to learn later is so that Lazarus would go ahead and die? I want you to think about that. A designed delay. So Jesus says, well, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him in verse 8, Rabbi, wait, Jesus, you know, I, I don't want to meddle here, but last time we were in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill you, right? So, so why would you want to go there? They were just seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus gave a really profound answer. He says, guys, he says, I want you to think about this. You know, there's 12 hours in the day. Now, now what he means by that is 12 hours of daylight, If anyone walks in the day, Jesus says, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I just want you to pause and think about that. What in the world did Jesus just say? They're going, he goes, I got to go back to Judea in that area. And and they're going, that's too dangerous, man. You're going to get killed. And Jesus goes, hang on. He goes, "There's, there's, there's 12 hours in the day. And he says, if you walk in the light, you're not going to stumble. But if you walk in the night, you stumble because there's no light in you. I found three things in here that I thought were safety first, or, or interesting. First of all, I think Jesus is reminding us that there's safety in the will of God. If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble. There's no safer place to be than in the will of God. I think of Joe Darrow and, and Brother Bill and, and the guys down at Cornerstone. Some of us were down there this, this week, and just in maybe a couple hours of standing there, I watched the police yank this guy or, 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 or cost this guy in the middle street, pull his car over. I, I watched another incident where I have no idea what happened, but the police are standing around another guy. He's laying on his face in the middle of the street or in the middle of the sidewalk, middle of the day. And, and all you got to do is go down there and go, man, there's guns, there's drugs, there's, there's just unspeakable danger all the time. And I knew Joe Darrow when he lived on a Christmas tree farm in Warrington, and I'm thinking, what? This guy moves down into the hood of Kensington to reach people with the gospel. I think this is what Jesus is saying. There's 12 hours in the day, and if you walk in the day, you're not going to stumble. See, because you have God's protection. You have his, his, his presence. But I, I want you to, to note, too, I think that Jesus is reminding us there's an urgency. And as this new year begins, I want to encourage you to, some of you need to get busier. You need to have a fire lit unto you. You need to start saying, you know what? Life is not a big game and party. Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation, he said, you're half dead. Your works aren't complete. And some of you, as a Christian, you need to be stirred up and stop being way too casual about your Christianity. There's an urgency. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 9, he said, night is coming when no man can work. And Christ is coming again. Or we may be going out of here sooner than we think. So I want you to think as you begin this new year to reorient yourself to say, I want to make serving the Lord a priority. 
But third, I want you to notice that there may even be a hint of purity. Notice verse 10. Jesus says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. But notice how he phrases it, because the light is not in him. You get that? He didn't say, hey, if you walk in the day, you're not going to stumble because you can see. And if you walk in the night, you stumble because you can't see. He says you stumble because the light is not in you. And anytime you and I are walking away from God and disobeying in him, or disobeying him, we're in the darkness again. We're groping around and we're in a, in a bad place. And so that's why the Bible says, if you say you've come to know him, he says, walk in the light. And as you walk in the light, it doesn't mean we don't sin. It means we repent and we ask forgiveness. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. And so in this little dialogue, Jesus gives some profound truths. They're like, you're going to go risk your life. He goes, don't worry about it. I'm safe. I'm in the will of God. Don't worry about it. There's an urgency. There's only a certain amount of time. And don't worry about it. If you're walking in purity with God, you're not going to stumble because the light is in you. Christ is in you and Christ is at work. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11, this he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may waken him out of sleep. Now, remember that sleep in the Bible is a metaphor for death. What the Bible teaches happens, and I want to remind you, and this, you and I need to know this as Christians, what happens when a person dies? Whether they're a believer or not, the moment they die, their inner man is separated from their body, okay? So you don't have to wonder if they go around as a ghost. You don't have to wonder if their soul is asleep. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. So, so anyone who's lost a believing loved one, you can know this. Their soul is with Christ. They're not complete yet. They're not glorified yet. They're not resurrected yet, but they're in a great place. Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But theologians call this the intermediate state. It's not, it's not the final state. And so Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And then the disciples said to him, well, Lord, they don't get it. He, he, he's, he'll recover. But Jesus spoke of his death, and they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, now watch this. And I'm glad? What are you, sick? You're glad? I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. That's a great reminder that Jesus is always cultivating our faith. It's not just this static, okay, I believe. We continue to believe. Our roots go deeper. Our faith grows stronger. And I think these guys were probably already believers. So, so Jesus is saying, I'm doing this so that you may continue to believe, believe more deeply. Because the Christian life is not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. So, therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go so that we may die with him. You know, Thomas takes a beating a lot. What's he famous for? Doubting Thomas. Does that sound like doubting Thomas? far as I'm concerned, he's the bravest guy there, right? I mean, same with Peter. We throw Peter under the bus. Oh, what a coward. He denied Jesus. Well, did he? In the garden, remember what he also did. He picked up his sword against 600 soldiers, and he cut off Malchus's ear. By the way, I, I thought of something interesting. You know what Jesus said to him? Hey, man, you dropped your earbud. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> My wife knew I was going to get that in somewhere. But, but, but the point I want you to see here is Thomas was willing to die for Christ. Are you, are you at that place? Somebody once said, how do I know whether I'm willing to die for Christ? Am I going to be Columbine, Cassie Burnell? Is ISIS going to put something on my door and they're going to pull a gun? Here's an easier way to answer that. Don't worry about whether you're willing to die for Christ. Ask yourself, are you willing to live for Christ? Because if you're willing to live for Christ, you've already settled that answer. And in some ways, it's easier to die for Christ than it is to live day after day, taking up your cross and denying yourself. But let's give Thomas a little, little praise there for his courage. So now Jesus is going to go two miles off from Jerusalem and meet with Mary and Martha. And he's going to discuss Lazarus' sickness, and he's going to discuss resurrection. And I want you to think about this, because have you ever heard people say this? Oh, dear friends, it's not ours to ask why. Doesn't that sound pious? Oh, why is this happening? Oh, it's not ours to ask why. Can I just say, that's stupid. It is ours to ask why. Where in the Bible does it say, it's not ours to ask why? The psalmist asks why. And if he doesn't convince you, then how about Jesus? Father, why have you forsaken me? So one of the things I want to encourage you to do this year is, is to be real and raw and genuine with God. If you've never read the Psalms, it's okay to express to God when you're mad, when you're sad, when you're glad, when you feel had. God wants you to pour out your heart to him. And I want you to see how Mary and Martha both become a model to us of wrestling with, with trouble and how Jesus becomes a great encouragement to us to bring our burdens to him. So let's see what happens. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found out that He'd already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, those of you that are familiar with Bible background know that. It seems weird to us, but they actually paid people to come and mourn at your, at your funeral, at, at the death of a loved one. You, you'd have professional mourners who would come and and doesn't that seem kind of weird to you? Like, we're kind of like, so how, how do you arrange that? Like, when you're making payments, like, do you want us to really scream? Because that's going to be a very expensive, or do you just want us to just quietly? I mean, it just seems so bizarre. But I do want you to think about this, that even here, what do we talk about often here? Community matters. Community matters. And I'll tell you something. You might not think you need anybody, you might think you got it all. You're good, just you and your little family. But I can tell you, when you lose a loved one, you need a community. You need people to come around you. And that's why we encourage you to get connected with people now. In fact, it's funny. A lady once asked Pastor Bob, she said, if I, if I don't join the church, will you still do my funeral? And Bob's like, no, I'm sorry. No, that's part of the package. Of course we'll do your funeral. <laughs> but the point is, Become a part of a community. So if you, haven't, if you haven't looked into that, go online and look at our small group. Sign up if you want somebody to call you and say, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to get to know some Christians and be part of a fellowship. Because that, those are the people that are going to be around you. 
No four or five pastors can come to six, seven, eight hundred people and be there for each one of you. And that's why we need one another. And it's a blessing that they had community around them. And so Martha, when she heard Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. And then Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And even now I know what, now look at this, whatever you ask God, God will give you. I want you to think about that. Just, uh, did she just say that? She goes, Jesus, you got an in with God, man. You could ask God for anything and he will give it to you. It's, it's kind of funny as, as a pastor, people, people somehow think that I have a special line to God, like, God, it's Pastor Tom. He said, hang on, angels, it's Pastor Tom, right? <laughs> you have the same access to God that I do, right? So, so don't put pastors up on a pedestal like we have some special hotline with God. But I will say this, that walking with God, trusting God, Surrendering to God does lead to confidence and power in prayer. And that's not reserved for pastors. David said, the Lord sets apart the godly man for himself and the Lord hears when I call him. Believe that? The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of what? Of a careless Christian and of a righteous man. And I want to encourage you, if you're going, oh, you know, God don't hear none of my prayers. You know, I'm on my way out the door when I say, God, be sure to help me win the lottery. I don't know why he never hears my prayers. <laughs> well, I want to encourage you to, to, to learn how to walk with God in prayer and spend time with him and, and grow in your confidence that God does answer prayer. We're going to see later Jesus is going to go, Father, I know you already heard me. And that's cool. That's a cool thought. We'll come back to that as we close this morning. So, Jesus says in verse 23, your brother's going to rise again. He says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, most of that's pretty straightforward, except for this phrase, whoever believes in me will never die. I learned something this week when I studied this. I was like, wait, that's not really true. Christians who believe in him still die. This isn't the only time Jesus says it in the Gospel of John. He goes, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And what I learned this week is you have to remember, and some of you already know this, that death has different shades, different meanings. There's three types of death in the Bible. Physical death, and that's where your body is separated from your soul. James chapter 2, just as the body without the spirit is dead. But then there's also spiritual death, and that's when your soul is separated from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became disconnected, offline. No more wireless connection with God. They're dead spiritually. And so they didn't have a relationship with God that they had before that. And we're born with that illness. We're born flatlined spiritually. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we have to understand that. People that don't have Christ in their life, they can be religious, they can be nice people, but they're dead and disconnected from God, no matter how good they look. And then the third type of death in the Bible is the scariest. It's called the second death. And this is what the Bible says. 
Anyone who's not in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So when Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die, he's talking about the second death and spiritual death. Because once you and I come into a relationship with Christ, and this is what's so cool, we have eternal life. You're not going to get it. It's not like Jesus is waiting for you at the gate with the fountain of youth, like Ponce de Leon. He goes, drink this, and then you can come into heaven. You have it. If you have Christ in your life, you have real, qualitative, substantial, eternal life, which is more than just living forever. It's not just a quantity of time. It's a quality. I frequently thank God for this. The Bible says, this is eternal life that you might know God and Jesus Christ. The Son of God has come and given us understanding so we might know him. And so Jesus says, when you believe in me, when you become a believer, you'll never die. This was really comforting to me. Yeah, I'll die physically, but not once will I be separated from God because he's just going to whisk me. I'll close my eyes and pass right into his presence. And that's really cool, isn't it, to know that as a Christian, I never have to worry about dying because I'll never be separated from him, not for a second. And so Mary says, I I do believe. Verse 27, it's a great verse. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, at the end of the book, John says, this is my goal. John says, this is why I wrote everything in this book, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that, you have life. You have it. Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus died and rose again and that he paid for your sins and that you've surrendered to him and you trust him? If so, you have life. And that's a great encouraging word from the Lord. Now it's Mary's turn. When he had said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, now notice, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus hadn't even come into the village yet. He was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were in the house consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, they went and followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. Now, I want you to notice this. She got up quickly and was coming to him. She saw him and fell at his feet. That's a good, good thing to do. And we'll come back to that. She said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Now, this is a really interesting word, deeply moved in spirit. Normally, this word means outraged. It's used of horses who snort in anger. So Donald Carson suggests that Jesus was, this should be translated, Jesus was outraged here. See, see, we tend to think he's just going, oh, oh so sad. But this particular word has the idea of being very angry and, and, and outraged. Now you go, wait a minute. Jesus was, was enraged? So some translations will say he was deeply moved. Right? He was troubled. But is it possible that he was a little bit angry? You go, does Jesus get angry? Yeah, the same word is used of Jesus. He gets angry when, when, you, when you turn children away from him. So what would cause Jesus to be both enraged and yet it invoked his compassion? And I want to suggest that Jesus wasn't enraged at people. 
He was, he was angry at sin and death. And that's still true of God. See, a lot of people think Jesus is, and God are just Mr. Marshmallow, grandfather in the sky. Children, more candy, I love everybody. My God will never punish anybody. I just love you. God gets enraged and angry about sin. The Bible says he's angry with the wicked every day. He that doesn't come to Christ, the Bible says the wrath of God abides on him. But he also has great mercy and compassion. And so Jesus, being both troubled and, and enraged towards sin and death, but yet compassionate, says, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. And Jesus wept. That's, that's precious. To think that Jesus comes to tears out of his love, out of his compassion. He's not a disconnected being. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then they said, hey, couldn't this man who have opened the blind, eyes of the blind have kept him from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved, came to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone was lying there. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Now I read this week that sometimes they buried people standing up, Right? Everyone knows that was true of George Washington. I read that he never lied. So I'm assuming he was... So maybe Lazarus was buried standing up, right? They removed the stone, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. But before he said that, look at verse 40. He says, didn't I say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Didn't I say to you, if you, if you personally believe me, you will see the glory of God? That excites me because, frankly, I want to see the glory of God in my life. I want to see God move, don't you? But yet there's a condition here. Some of us never see the glory of God because we don't believe. We don't trust God. We don't pray. We don't expect God to do anything. And so Jesus says... In response to your faith, you will see the glory of God. So they remove the stone. And then I love Jesus' prayer here because he must have already had this conversation with God. Remember back in chapter 5, he says, I never do anything unless the Father shows me and tells me what to do. So he and God had already had a conversation about this. God had told him, I want you to go and heal Lazarus. And so Jesus prayed about it. And he says, Father, I want you to... to to resurrect Lazarus through my words. And the father says, yes, I'll do that. And so Jesus, it's already done, right? But Jesus shows up. And look what he says when he prays. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. Notice, it's in past tense. I thank you that you already, you already heard me. And I thought about this. When we pray publicly, it's really hard not to worry about what other people are thinking. But at the same time, there's a reason why Jesus said what he did, and he prayed publicly. And he said certain things to God in public that would edify and bless and build up other people. That was one of the things I loved about Spurgeon. He would have other men preach, but he would never let anyone else pray. He wanted to be the pastor who prayed for the people in the public prayer. And so Jesus said, because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he cried, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus, Lazarus came forth hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Now, if we had time, we could go off on this and go, man, I want to know, where was Lazarus? Many people believe that in the Old Testament, that when people died, they didn't go immediately to the presence of God. They went to a place called Abraham's bosom, which was under the earth. 
the netherworld, the, the, the place of the abyss, and it was a place of comfort. And maybe Lazarus is just standing around at a social, talking to Abraham. He's having a piece of angel food cake, and suddenly <laughs> you tap him on his shoulder. They go, you got to go back. And he goes, no! And they grab him, and they put him back in his body. It's really interesting that he was not allowed, or, or as far as we know, we don't know what he saw. This is why I kind of get a little bugged about people who all, everybody wants to be on Oprah and tell about their near-death experience. We don't know anything about Lazarus when he left his body. And Paul says, when I left my body and went to be with Christ, I saw things that I'm not permitted to speak. So I actually believed heaven was for real before that little boy came, right? So I just want to caution you that the New Testament is, is our complete revelation of Scripture, and we have here everything we need for life and godliness. So Jesus unbinds him. I want to look at what, what, what Caiaphas says here, and then we'll close with some applications. It says, many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he'd done, and they believed. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, the Pharisees at this point are going to go ballistic. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. That was the 70 leaders. This is the Sanhedrin. And they get together, and they go, what are we doing? This guy's performing many signs, and if we go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. Which were like, yeah, that's what we want. That's not what they want. Keep reading. Everyone will believe in him. Next, next verse. There we go. The Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, wait a minute, you don't know, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, this is really cool. God can speak through anybody. In fact, he can speak through donkeys, Right? And when God spoke through Caiaphas, Caiaphas didn't realize what he was saying. And, and I want to remind you this. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Pray that God works in the hearts of unbelievers. But here's Caiaphas. He has no idea what he's saying here. He meant something totally different. He says to God, Hey, listen, don't you realize it's expedient? Actually, that word should be translated. It's better for you. In other words, let's just kill Jesus. It's better that that one man die for the people, then the whole nation not perish. So in Caiaphas' mind, let's just, let's just kill this guy so the Romans don't kill us. But in God's mind, he's prophesying the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Look at verse 51. He said this not on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. See, now he had no idea what that meant, but we do. Reading it now, we go... He didn't die to keep him from getting killed by the Romans. He died so that we might be spared from his wrath. But let's close with this last verse. Next verse. It says, He also died in order that he might to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's us. We're pretty far from Jerusalem, right? If you look west, we're a long way off. And there are still people out there who God... Has, has elected and Jesus died for and he's calling to himself even here this morning. What a blessing to know that Jesus died to bring all of God's children into one family, one fold. So let me close with some thoughts here. This is a really interesting chapter, but it's important that we walk away with some, some application. Number one, I want to remind you, what trouble is in your life this morning that seems painful and purposeless? I mean, what could be worse than losing a loved one? 
whatever trouble you're going through, sickness, depression, addiction, shame, marital troubles, family troubles, remember this, everything God allows, it's for his glory. So there's a reason. It's for his glory, and, and he wants to reveal his glory to you, and then he wants you to return glory to him. And remember that, in addition to that, God designs everything to conform us to the image of Christ, and he promises that all things are going to work together for good. So I hope that'll comfort you this morning. We're not a bunch of perfect people. We're a bunch of struggling sinners who have problems. But see the purpose behind your problems, the glory of God, the conformity to the image of Christ, and the promise that he's going to work it for good. Secondly, let me just mention a couple things about prayer. I want to remind you to learn to take your troubles to Jesus. The old songwriter said it this way, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else can heal all your soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about your troubles, and he will keep you till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. Jesus loves you like nobody else does. And our initial reaction to trouble is to go to somebody else. And I want to encourage you to do like Mary. Get up, run to Jesus, and fall down and pour out your heart to him. The songwriter said, oh, what peace we often forfeit and what needless pain we bear because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. And then secondly, pray that your faith and obedience this year will invoke greater confidence. Don't you want to see God answer your prayers? John said in 1 John 3, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what's pleasing in his sight. There's another motivation to trust and obey God because as you and I trust and obey God, we will see more confidence. As Jesus said, Father, I know you always hear me. Let me say a couple things about death real quick. Some of you have lost a loved one, and that's, that's I don't even, I especially those of you who have buried your children can't imagine the pain. But you haven't lost them because if they're Christian, something's only lost if you don't know where it is. Yeah, wail, grieve, cry, that's all right. But Paul says, not without hope. And we're to comfort one another with that great reminder that at any moment, the Lord himself is coming and those who have died in Christ will be raised up and we will forever be with the Lord. Hang in there. And then some of you who are getting closer to death, as you're getting older and you're going, man, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't look forward to dying. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to Peter, this is how you're going to die. And John says, this is the death by which he was glorified God. Pray now that when we face death, that we will be glorifying God even in our death by faith. And then... Two last thoughts. If Jesus gave his life that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, is that on your heart? That's on his heart. We're talking missions here. We're talking about lost people. We're talking about seven billion people on this planet, and many of them haven't even heard about Jesus. In, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a Syrian pastor come and share what God's doing among the Muslims in Syria as bullets are flying all over the place. But I can tell you this, God is bringing many of them to Christ. 
And so please pray. Pray earnestly that the gospel will go forth in power and that all over the world, especially those who are persecuted, Paul said, I'll endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may attain salvation. But that's way far away. Here, now, would you join me in prayer daily that God will save many souls through our church? Could I get an amen to that? Will you, will you join me? I plead with God. Will you, as many of you do, will you join me in prayer? God uses prayer to save lost people. 1 Timothy 2 says, first of all, I urge you to pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved. And God uses churches that pray. We don't need to come up with clever schemes and plans and free televisions and and trinkets and dogs and ponies and people lighting themselves on fire. We've got a powerful gospel and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and people. And as you and I just go out there, you don't have to go to the street corner and preach. Instead, 80% of people come to Christ through friends and family members. Build relationships with unbelievers and pray for them. And when Tyrones are walking down the street, pick them up and give them a ride and and encourage them. And love your neighbor. And Paul said, become all things to all men that you might see some of them saved. I thank God. It's exciting, isn't it? Many people have come to Christ this year and we want to see God save more. So lastly, I want to give a brief invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, Jesus, one of his favorite words was come. What does that mean? It means to make a decision in your heart to say, I want to follow Christ. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. And I want to surrender to him. And I want to follow him. And I want to be forgiven. And what the Bible teaches is that when you do that, you don't keep it a secret. You don't hide it. You publicly confess Christ as your Lord. So we're going to do something as we close. Real simple. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. And I don't do this all the time, but every once in a while I feel led to do this, and I felt that this would be a a good morning to do this. If you've become a Christian, if you said, I've made a decision, and I know the Lord has forgiven me, and you've never publicly professed that, I'm going to ask you to come stand with me. It doesn't save you. Coming up here is not going to make you a Christian. And if you don't come up here, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But for some of you, God will speak to your heart, and you'll say, I want to... I want to publicly stand and say, I am a Christ follower. The Lord has opened my eyes and I'm a believer. And if God's speaking to your heart, we won't delay it. We're going to sing one line of amazing grace. But just get up and come and stand with me. The Holy Spirit is working. And if you're not ready to do that, just let us know. We want to talk to you about how you can come to know Christ as your Savior. Father, I pray that the Spirit will move now as we sing Amazing Grace, and if there's anyone that wants to profess their faith and stand with me to say, I do believe and I want to follow Christ, may you move in their hearts, and may we rejoice together this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing one line of Amazing Grace, so come if you're going to come. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. We love him. We bless him. We pray the Holy Spirit will continue to work through us as we go out. May you show us the glory of God this week as we trust you and obey you. For those who are still troubled about their souls, may they just talk to someone this morning. And Father, may you comfort the hurting and send us forth in the power of the Holy Spirit in community, ready to do your work. For there's 12 hours in the day and we want to finish what you've given us to do. Thank you, Lord, for all of your blessings upon our church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. <clears throat>